Brilliant. Um, so guys, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're visiting us this morning, um, we have um, a new, uh, we're going through a sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in a bit of a journey as a church at the moment. Um, we started off in Joshua, uh, just about before he was about to go across the River Jordan and into the Promised Land. Um, and the instruction to Joshua, to, the, to his men, was to focus on the ark. So look where God's presence is going, and we're going to follow that presence. Um, and we have um, kind of um, interpreted that as just looking at Jesus. So um, we spent some time earlier this, uh, earlier this year looking at encounters with Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, seeing how he interacted with his disciples and those around him. Um, and now we're focusing on the words of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount, the biggest block of his teaching. Um, and as we looked at, some of you remember, in our gospel community uh, last week, we looked at the topic of, of teaching and some of us were drawing out that Jesus' words and his actions were always in line with, with one another. And he, he taught um, demonstrably in what he was doing, but he was always backed up with, with verbal teaching. And because we know that Jesus' actions and his words are consistent with his character, we can spend some more time with Jesus now, uh, listen to what he has to say, and, and begin to point at opportunities in our own lives um, to be transformed by him. Um, this is going to be quite hard. Um, this isn't like the easiest block of teaching. Some really, really tough topics. I'm not looking forward to, to preaching on some of those that, ones that are coming up. Um, but it's important that we wrestle with these topics and that we spend some time to really understand Jesus' heart in these matters. So we're not promising that this is going to be a, a pretty series, um, but we pray that God uses this time to re- reveal more about what Jesus is speaking to us. Uh, and to be transformed to look more like Jesus in the areas that he's called us into. Um, and so today I'm going to be doing the third installment of our series. Um, if you missed uh, um, sermons one or two, I'd encourage you to check them out online. Um, first, uh, Ian um, opened up uh, this with um, the setting that where Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus was pro- proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom to people that needed to hear it and healing those that were sick and needed a touch of Jesus in that place. And then two weeks ago, John um, began looking at the Beatitudes. Um, we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and John explained that, um, that these, uh, what these Beatitudes are meant to be doing. And, and we don't believe that these Beatitudes are moral lessons or virtues to aspire to, um, that we need to implement. They're simply a declaration of God's grace upon us freely given to, uh, to those who aren't succeeding by earthly standards. And they act as an invitation. Um, we're not excluded from God's kingdom because we're poor or we're downcast. In fact, we get to receive the kingdom of heaven. Um, I don't know if some of you remember, John used the analogy of sort of the picture-in-picture picture view, uh, where the world and the dominating culture is focusing on what the big screen is saying, whereas Jesus is, is in the small screen. Versus the world, Jesus radically redefines what it means to be blessed and who is able to be blessed. And it's our job to be focused on the, on the small screen, on Jesus' uh, small, still voice, um, and to be able to, to center our lives and our approach and what Jesus is saying to us. Um, and so this week, going on to um, the next uh, beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I just want to um, spend a bit more time um, this morning just talking about what it means to be blessed, because I think this is really, really important for us. I think there's quite a lot of nuance um, to this. Um, and I think um, John's framing here, um, for those of you here, here two weeks ago, was really helpful. Um, so I just wanted to spend a bit of time exploring what it means to be blessed. Um, 
So what I think is happening here is I think there is um, there's a bit of a, a connotation that we have with blessing that um, helps us, it makes it difficult to understand what I think that Jesus is saying here. And if you look in the Old Testament and in, in the New Testament as well, as well, you can find what would typically refer to as what we refer to as a blessing. Lots of children, increased property, victory in battle. And in all of these cases, it was clear that the blessing came fr- from God, either directly from him when he dwelt with his people, or from a priest or uh, a rabbi acting on his behalf. And we see this uh, when God blesses Adam and Eve and tells them to fruitful and multiply. And when David first welcomed the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he blessed the people of Israel in the name of the Lord. And in, in these moments, we can treat these blessings as sort of words of power because they came from the Almighty God. They became true because God or God's representatives spoke them on God's behalf. And we know that God's, um, God spoke the world into being. And so we know that, that God's, God's words have, have power. But I, as a layperson, wouldn't go around blessing people and proclaim, proclaiming these good things because I had no authority to do that. And this is shown, one of the examples um, that we sing um, quite a lot of time in church is the ironic blessing in number six. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. So they shall put a name upon the people of Israel. They shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And I think just focusing on that, they they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. And in this moment, God's name holds power and God is authorizing the priests of Israel to declare that over his people imparting his blessing onto them. And, and typically, uh, when spoken by God's representatives, these blessings were part of a ritual, uh, usually a burnt offering. Uh, we saw that with, De- with David. Uh, he burnt offerings be- before declaring the blessing. And for the uh, ironic blessing, Aaron and his sons were called to be ritually pure and set apart to be able, able to carry out those priestly duties that they were called to in the tabernacle. And so on one hand, we have this very, very specific uh, form of blessing that we see throughout the Old Testament, uh, which was God-given, um, and um, but I think we have a different set, a different word here that Jesus is using. So the word for that, um, for the priestly blessing in Greek, uh, is eulogia, um, and on the other hand here we have Jesus using this word makarios. Um, and to understand the form in which Jesus is pronouncing these blessings, we need to understand a bit of about the Jewish culture at the time. Um, and in that culture at the time, um, the, the, the main values were honor and shame. Um, and these were sort of the central underpinnings that undergirded the community at that time. Um, if you had honor, you could make a certain claim about yourself, whether it was your gender, your status, your living situation, your wealth, or your position within the religion, whether you're a, um, a Pharisee or uh, someone important. And then your community would then confirm or deny that, that um, status that you're claiming about yourself. And conversely, if you had shame, you ha- if you had shame, if you had a negative reputation or a negative characteristic or behavior, your community would shun you or treat you negatively so that you retreated more from public life to hide and protect that shame. And if we focus on honor within this context, and honor could be ascribed or acquired. So some honors were simply bestowed on those who were born. If you were for a greater clan or part of royalty, if you were male or if you were the firstborn. You're given uh, this honor just by being born and who you were. 
Um, or sometimes it was authority was honor was delegated to you if you had a position of importance and that you you were made more honorable. But um, you're also able to acquire honor in the community through word and deed. Um, and one of these formal ways that uh, people were trying to acquire honor in the, in this time was expressed using this word makarios in very similar to the structured form that Jesus uh, we see Jesus use it in. Blessed are those who do this or do this, etc., etc. And the idea behind this is that you would declare a positive social trait that you admire in your community and you would hope that that was shared and reflected back to you and people would agree with you and respond back to you positively. And you can sort of imagine this. I think the best uh, equivalent to this setting is in a pub. You can imagine someone saying, oh, you know, blessed are those who drive electric cars because they're doing their bits for climate change. Or uh, I actually think more... uh, more likely in the pub, you know, shame on BMW drivers for cutting people up in middle lane driving. <laughs> no offense to any BMW drivers in the room. Um, and in those moments, you, you know, you can imagine someone down the pub sort of talking about this. They're looking for validation for what they've said and acceptance into their community. And in, that, in this process, the community is agreeing on what their shared values are in that space. Um, and this was a common literary practice and a verbal one. Um, the Pharisees did this with Jesus a lot, asking him questions and trying to set him up into shaming him. So this, these, um, these structures weren't always had positive intent, and you could use it to kind of shame someone and say, oh, isn't this good? And then they agree with you and say, actually, no, because of this. Um, and this, in this very competitive environment, um, you get fa- the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus into this. And um, What's brilliant about Jesus is that he had the wisdom in those moments to know the heart of the person asking the question or the person um, stating the blessing. So he knew how to respond. And I think one of the most interesting examples of this is found in Luke 11, uh, verses 27 to 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Um, and I think the woman here in this example is trying to curry favor with Jesus, is complimenting his mother, um, and Jesus knows the heart of the person, is that it, you know, it's, it's genuine, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's well-intentioned. It's actually not necessarily the values that Jesus subscribes to, because again, that's going back to who, who were you born from, what's your lineage, that's kind of like the, one of the values of the world. And so he says, blessed are rather those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's who Jesus is saying that he, 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 he values in, in his community. And I think with this framing, I, kind of f- I find uh, the more helpful word for blessed because I think it, it has too much of that first form of blessing, that connotation of divine uh, abundance from God. I think the better word to help us understand this is the word honored because we remove the connotations of the word of power from God and instead use it as a framework for his community values. I think we get closer to Jesus' intention. It says in Matthew 5, Honoured are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Honoured are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Honoured are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Honoured are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Honoured are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Honoured are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Honoured are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Honoured are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The community that Jesus is talking about here is his kingdom. These are Jesus' community values. And he's inviting the crowd and us to agree with him and accept these behaviors and people groups 
or continue to reject them, as the world does, and in that process, shame Jesus. And we know what decision the Jews ultimately made in that time. They went to continue to what the world thought was valuable, what the community wanted at the time. And we get to make that same decision today. As we act as agents of God's kingdom, what values are we accepting in our community? What meets our internal bars? Who are we building up when we're down the pub talking about what we value? Um, and we move on to, uh, to mourning. Honoured are those who mourn. We look at the meaning of the Greek used here is uh, pentheo. And it's used for a deep grief, deep grief over the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship. I think mourning is um, a perfect word to be using here. It says in the related passage in Luke, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And in this moment, we get this very visual image of someone mourning the loss of a loved one, similar to how Jesus wept when mourning Lazarus' death before he was raised from the dead. I just want to briefly touch on something that um, John mentioned two weeks ago. Um, Because if you try and find um, a lot of teaching on this specific beatitude, um, you get a lot about uh, mourning one's sin. Um, And I think um, a lot of people have come to this conclusion, because if you look at these beatitudes um, as a list of virtues or things to um, um, aspire to, you kind of, they don't really make much sense. It's like, um, doesn't, how, do, how, how do I mourn? How is that, how is that um, uh, a good thing to do um, to, to um, acquire holiness? Um, and you can find some verses in the Bible that talk about the importance of having a godly sorrow about our sinful nature. Uh, that sorrow leads to, to repentance and the correct fear of God. Um, and that is absolutely correct. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and God uses that time where he reveals our sinful nature of us to direct him back to him because we realize, compared to him, what our fallen state um, brings us into and being separate from him. But it doesn't make sense to mourn sin in that way because mourning is an important process that we go through when we suffer loss. But there are no active steps in that mourning that restore anything that was lost to us previously. It's a process that we, why we, we go to, but we can't bring that, that person or that relationship back necessarily. And actually, this is actually very different from Jesus' teaching on sin, because as we're going to go on to later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's way more extreme than just mourning our sin. Jesus is instructing us to sort out whatever is causing us to sin, including removing something as important to us as a, as a body part. We don't, we don't take that literally. But there is an active step that we have to take in, in that process. Not just the sorrow. Sorrow is one part of it, but God is calling us to be um, aware of the sin in our life and to try and, and to remove those things that cause us to stumble in that way. So if Jesus is calling those into his community that are suffering a deep grief and for those that are weeping, why? Why, why, why does Jesus do this? Um, and I could get super spiritual here and I could say, uh, you know, those who have less in the world are more likely to come to Jesus if they, you know, they have less in the world to rely on, um, you know, less uh, resources, less money, uh, less people of those around us. Um, and because you know, that, that's all temporary, we just have to rely, look, and rely on God. 
I think there's, there is an, a small element of truth in this, but also God made us to live in community, um, and so there's quite a lot of nuance in that argument. And I think, honestly, I just believe that Jesus has a heart for those that are hurting. The fatherly heart that comes alongside us, puts an arm around us and comforts us. Uh, we say to Phoebe a lot of the time when she falls over, uh, if she hurts herself, she bumps, bumps, her, bumps her head. Uh, we'll give her a cuddle and say, we'll continue to cuddle you as long as it hurts. So as long as you're hurting. So she knows that in her pain, we're there for her. I think God acts very similarly in that scenario. And if you look at the culture around Jesus as he was uh, preaching this, the most prevalent expression of mourning was, was the widow. If you're a woman in society and your husband and your sons had died, then you're often on your own and by extension poor and without a place in society. And God's command to look after the widows in your community stretches back to the law of Moses. God has always instructed his people to care for widows. Jesus himself heals a widow's son in Luke, showing compassion for those that are mourning. And again, in, in that moment, that, um, the widow's son would have been like the, life, the lifeline of that, of, of that family. And the son would be expected to go out to work and to, to earn the, the, the wages to keep the food um, into the house. And again here, following on from what John was preaching two weeks ago, God has instructed his people to, um, to take care. Jesus is welcoming those in his society that society would, would reject, typically female and poor, but not exclusively. Jesus wants to honor all of those who are hurting. He's lifting up the brokenhearted and those that are like, likely aren't able to look after themselves. And he's inviting them into his kingdom through a seat at his table. But the promise here is that for, for those of us that are mourning, that we will be comforted. For they will be comforted. And during these ver verses, when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, we like to frame it by saying there's a part of Jesus' kingdom that, that is on earth now that we get to freely receive, and there are parts of it that are yet to come. And so we live in this in-between time where God, due to the, to the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, he works in us and through us for his purposes. And we get to experience that and live in that reality now. But also, Jesus hasn't come in his fullness yet, and so we continue to wrestle with the world it's suffering and it's hurting and pain. And we know that in Jesus it is finished and we have a future glory in him, but we're not there yet. And so I just want to quickly um, explain what it means to be comforted by God now and what comfort means in God's kingdom when it's fully realized. I think in, the, in this moment, God comforts us using his spirit by giving us his presence. In the darkest hours when we're most alone, those are some of the most powerful encounters I've had with God. Uh, coming here on a Sunday is fantastic, meeting with other people, singing like worship, praising God, um, and we can feel God's presence here this morning. Um, and similarly, when it says, when two or more are gathered, God is there with them. And again, that's important to meet with other believers, to pray into things. But there's something unique about experiencing that, co that comfort of God's presence when we're alone. We have no one to rely on. We're in our deepest, deepest, loneliest moments. For me personally, that's where God has touched me the most. In those moments, God's peace rests on us. 
God begins to heal our broken hearts. But also in this current time, we live in the knowledge and hope that Jesus brings and an understanding and clarity to the morning. We trust that God is gracious, merciful, and just in his handling of us when we die and when others close to us die. We don't always know whether we will see loved ones again when we go into glory, but we know of God's love for us and we know the purpose by which we're made to give him glory. And I believe that gives us a comfort because it puts God ultimately in control. When we don't understand what he's doing and we don't understand the reasons for our earthly grief, we can have faith and trust in him. But that's not all that God has given us in this current time because he's given us his people. We're called to be Jesus' hands and feet to a hurting world and to come alongside each other. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Galatians 6.2 Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Have you ever mourned with someone? I don't think I have. That's quite a a high bar and quite a a, a tall order to, to ascribe to, but it's what God is instructing us to do. He's instructing us to share both the good times and the bad times in his community. And that means in someone's grief, spending enough time with that person that you understand the grief and you take it on as as your own. And you mourn with them alongside that person. Going back to the example of widows, um, there's a great example in the story of Ruth. And so if there's one thing that I'd encourage you to do today is is reread the the story of Ruth. So she's with her mother-in-law Naomi and and sister-in-law Orpah. And all of their husbands have died. So there's three uh, widows alone. Um, Naomi was originally from Judah, um, and she's um, going back there with uh, her two daughter-in-laws. And on the way, she decides to release her two daughter-in-laws from their marriage oath and tells them to go back to their mother's houses where they can look to remarry, have have children, and be supported by their community. And and there's a bit of back and forth, but after some persuading, Orpah leaves. But Ruth uh, Ruth stays and says... And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the God, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I just, I, I love, I love that commitment. You have two widows in their grief, in their vulnerability, and one says, "I'm going to commit to you. Whatever happens, I'm sticking with you." I think that's a really fantastic example. Um, but the story continues uh, because Ruth uh, uh, and Naomi find one of uh, Naomi's relatives, Boaz, um, who is the guardian redeemer of the family uh, and eventually marries uh, Ruth, providing for the entire family. Um, and this guard- position of guardian redeemer was installed to protect the poorest in the family, someone who they could turn to for help or if someone fell into poverty and had to sell land to feed themselves, um, they were responsible for buying back that land to keep it within the family. 
And just as it was an instruction for God's people back then, we can use it as a model for us as God's people, a family today, to provide help, to allow somewhere for people to turn to, to redeem one another in financial difficulty. This is the kind of community that Jesus is inviting us into. But ultimately, God's comfort comes spending eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I don't really feel like I need to say much more than that on that point. It's just, it is incredible. The very essence of pain, of suffering or loss, doesn't exist in God's kingdom, in God's presence. And we're invited to spend eternity with them in that place. That's the true comfort that God is giving to us, is offering to us. John has uh, challenged us in this series um, to think practically um, about uh, the advice that we give um, as part of this. So if we, if we understand that Jesus is honoring those that are mourning, what do we do in response to that? How do we live as a community? Because it's very good to come on a Sunday and to learn something new, to hear an inspiring sermon, um, to feel good about ourselves and what God's doing. Um, but he's called us into a journey with him. And there's an active response that he's calling us all into. Um, and we're framing these practical steps around our values. Um, and so uh, if you're new with us this morning, um, we've got um, eight values that we're centering around uh, four directions in life. Um, up, in, out, and down. Um, and so this morning, uh, I just want to say, uh, if you're mourning, if you've lost someone or lost a relationship and you're feeling the grief, uh, and I, uh, I've not experienced that, so I, I don't know what you're going through, but I would, I, would, I would like to to know a bit more about that. I want to come alongside you in that. But could I encourage you to explore what a Sabbath could mean? One of our values is Sabbath. One of our, our down or rest values is Sabbath. Because if God comforts us now through his spirit, there is no better way to experience that than to rest in him. And the reason why we all struggle with the Sabbath because it's, because it's so countercultural. Again, it's looking at you know, the values of the world versus God's values. Because the world would say, if you're not doing something to fix your own problems, if you're not hustling to get more power and status, then you're not going to make it, and you're not worthy. But God says, rest in me and experience my love and my presence. Trust him, rely on him, and let him meet your needs. It's scary, it's difficult, but it's also a gift from God that we get to explore with him together. Um, and so we're going to be get, um, looking at um, Sabbath in our gospel communities um, over the next, uh, in the next few weeks, maybe in about a month's time. 
Um, so I just uh, encourage you to, if you're not part of gospel communities, just come and love to speak to you afterwards how you can get involved with that as we explore what it means to, to have a Sabbath together. But this morning, if you are grieving, um, I would love to, to pray, pray with you after the service, um, if you, um, just that God would reveal himself to you in your grief. God would come alongside you and comfort you through his presence, but also in the knowledge of what we're going into what we get to be in with, with Jesus. For those of you that aren't mourning, how are you supporting believers in your community? It's one of our in values, is community. God has called this group of people together to demonstrate his love practically. So much so that those on the outside are supposed to look in and say, I want a piece of that action. I want to be part of that community. And it's within that community that we're called to serve and to love others. So who this morning, who is mourning or suffering in your community, who could you, or within, within this, this body of believers, who could you bind yourself to like Ruth did? Where you go, I will go. Or who could you be the guardian redeemer to like Boaz? Don't worry, we're not going to marry everyone off. So I'm going to become like the Moonies, get assigned a random person to get married to, have a big, big wedding service. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. But who could you honour today? Who could you, whose issues could you help resolve, could you take on? Whose debts could you pay? Problems could you help with? Um, just as I'm going to, before I end, I, just, I think it's good to take it back to Jesus. Because going back to what we were talking about with um, the blessing of the former sense, the word of power from God, we get this from Jesus too. Through his death on the cross, resurrection, and invitation to come with him, we inherit that blessing. The ritual sacrifice required to write us with God for us to receive that heavenly blessing and gives us the future hope in his comfort. So not only are we invited into Jesus' community, but we get to be part of his kingdom, but we also receive that blessing through the cross. I just want to finish. Um, I think we've already sang it this morning, actually. Um, Isaiah 61. This is what Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. Amen.